Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Our next talk, we get a two-for-one deal today. We have Susanna hennessy Lavery from the San Francisco Department of Public Health, and we also have Marianne Zito. Um, Susanna is a health educator, and... Susanna is a health educator, and she designs and implements tobacco control programs and co-designs and implements community action model for policy development programs, and she does a lot with food security initiatives. And Marianne co-staffs the Shape Up um, of San Francisco, and the Shape Ups works to create environments that make it fun and easy to eat well and move more, and we're going to hear more about that. Great. So good afternoon, everybody. I think I should start by saying that neither Marianne nor myself are researchers. That's the first thing. Um, and what we're going to do, we started this morning talking about big policy and had some very interesting discussions during the day and are going to end up now sharing with you some policy and community initiatives to create healthy food environments here in San Francisco, share some of the work that we're doing. So before I begin, um, I wanted to share that I come from the tobacco control world. I've been working for 17 years in tobacco control policy and there's some interesting parallels in the work on food and tobacco. Um, unfortunately, on the negative side, there was the collaboration between researchers at Philip Morris that looked at addiction and tobacco and researchers at their former um, subsidiary, Kraft Foods. I think Kraft Nabisco were the second largest corporate food producers in the world at one point. And they were looking at addiction at food and where they pooled their expertise in search of making more alluring food and cigarettes. So um, they, they were collaborating in a very unfortunate way. But on a more positive note, I think the lessons learned and the success of public health and the tobacco control movement is really focused on working with communities to look at systems change and environmental change and policy development to address disparities in communities and that we can learn a lot from that in our work to promote a just, sustainable, and robust food system. So I'm going to start with a set of policies um, that are uh, among the most far-reaching initiatives at the city and county level. And this is the Mayor's Executive Directive on Healthy and Sustainable Foods for San Francisco. Has anyone heard of this? Okay, great, excellent. This was released um, last year, and it really directs all city departments in San Francisco to develop and implement policies in these areas. So, for example, in urban ag, uh, this addresses really the incredible potential to grow food right here in San Francisco. So it directs all city departments to audit city lands for urban ag purposes and then coordinate support for urban ag, so equipment and maintenance and technical assistance and things like that. When we talk about nutritional standards, this is really a huge opportunity for the city to promote healthy and sustainable foods through purchasing and permitting. So, for example, the city is developing nutritional standards for all vending machines on city property, and this would be mandated, as well as city lease agreements or permits for mobile food vendors throughout San Francisco. Finally, all city staff are now directed to provide healthy, locally produced, and sustainable foods at all of our meetings, conferences, trainings, uh, events like this, which it looks like we're doing that. So in other words, we're, we're um, walking the talk, as they say. 
Food business is the next area. It's part of the executive directive, and this is a very important area, and what the city's doing is coming up with a food business action plan. So that's identifying strategies and incentives to attract new full-service markets to the city and promote existing food retail that advances the goals of the directive, especially in our food deserts. And I'm going to talk about all of that in a minute, as well as create a sustainable food business recognition program. So those of you that live in the city, you see the little green um, flyers when you go into a restaurant and they're rated, et cetera, et cetera. That would be something similar to that, as well as provide for a new and expanded facilities at our wholesale produce market. Does anyone know where our wholesale produce market is in San Francisco? It's in one of our food deserts. It's in the Baby Hunters Point, ironically. So the idea is to, again, make those links. And I just want to make, uh, I think the key point here in food business is that the tobacco, alcohol, and junk food industries have been subsidizing retail for so long that our communities are saturated with these products. So this is really about um, policies where the city is putting its muscle behind, promoting a good neighbor type of retail that more and more becomes a source of well-being in the community. Um, as far as regional food, we're talking about connecting the urban with the rural so that all city food purchases be as regionally sourced as possible. That includes a local and sustainable food procurement policy, it's a mouthful, that governs all city departments. So Laguna Honda Hospital, San Francisco General Hospital, for example, are more and more shifting their procurement policies so that they're sourcing locally and sourcing fresh. And then the rules and regulations are being developed for all the farmer's markets that are popping up all over the city. Um, hunger and food security, this is really about efforts to ensure that all the food programs in San Francisco are fully utilized. You may know that food stamps are underutilized throughout the state and in San Francisco. So there's a new initiative here that has set up 10 food stamp remote sites at community-based organizations throughout the city so that people can go to a trusted community-based organization to see if they qualify for food stamps and apply, as opposed to going to sort of a sterile downtown government-looking office. And then finally, we're working on fisheries. I won't go into that too much. Um, and all of these policies and implementing actions will be integrated into the city's general plan and are overseen by a food policy council. So finally, San Francisco's mayor is really committed to reducing access to sweetened beverages. And I'm going to turn this over to my colleague, uh, Marianne Zito, who's going to talk a little bit more about efforts related to this area. So as Susana mentioned, uh, San Francisco's mayor has publicly expressed his interest in pursuing policy or legislation options to reduce um, access to and the consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages. Um, and he's really been laying the foundation with two uh, main uh, main. Ways. So one is the, study, the city has conducted a nexus study to um, assess the relationship between calorically sweetened beverages and overweight and obesity. And I mean, there's tons of research out there now. And while these results are not made public yet, um, they are certainly going to help guide uh, the policy work when, if and when that it, that happens. Um, and the second way is what I've been more involved with, which is a citywide um, awareness and education campaign called Soda Free Summer. And so why soda? Well, as Dr. Brownell um, talked about this morning, soda is the number one source of sugar in the American diet. Um, kids these days drink twice as much soda as milk, and in 1973, the inverse was true. So um, 
Another reason is that soda is the only food um, that's linked to obesity. The California Center for Public Health Advocacy released a policy brief last July um, that directly linked soda consumption to obesity in California. Um, I think one of the statistics that sticks out is that um, for for adults who consume one or more sodas a day, regardless of ethnicity or income, um, they are 27% more likely to be overweight or obese. Um, another reason is that kids gain weight in the summer, and that could be for a number of reasons, but you know, maybe due to the lack of structure with school being out, but um, that's definitely um, something that's been found in research. And then finally, all the research today suggests that soda is a potentially addictive substance. Um, the combination of sugar and caffeine, the high fructose corn syrup, um, drinking the calories does not, you know, make you full. So we tend to eat more. So um, for all of these reasons and more, um, we've really focused on soda and created or implemented this uh, very specific and time-sensitive um, campaign. So what is Soda Free Summer? It's a 10-week challenge to reduce or eliminate um, consumption of not just soda, but other sweetened beverages. You know, for marketing purposes, Soda Free Summer sounds more sexy. So that's kind of what we've gone with. Um, the campaign was actually developed by Alameda County in 2007. But in 2008, we've taken it regionally. Um, so six Bay Area counties have been implementing it since 2008. Um, and we were funded by the California Endowment to conduct an evaluation um, and, you know, we really wanted to look at um, not just individual behavior change, but also organizational change. So this, this chart shows the individual behavior change, and um, the evaluation was a random digit dial of 600 participants, and 47% um, of those who participated reported drinking less soda than they did prior to the campaign. And in a follow-up question, we wanted to know what were they replacing the soda with, and it turns out it is water, so that's great. Um, I, it's not pictured in the slide, but there was a stakeholder survey as well. So of the organizations that implemented the campaign, more than half of them also reported that they um, started policy changes. And um, so you know, organizations were changing policies so that they couldn't, uh, were restricting and limiting access to unhealthy foods and beverages. Again, walking the talk. And so, again, we didn't want to just see um, individual behavior change, but this is a slide to, that demonstrates the support that we found uh, for policy changes by local and state governments, which is great, you know, because we really need a comprehensive strategy in order to have lasting behavior change. So as you can see, the majority of respondents really do support limiting access um, and, and from uh, the local and state level. Uh, this is just another parallel campaign that we launched last summer, Drink Water, aimed at the um, three- to seven-year-old population. Um, and now, because we have these two components, we are broadening the message to Rethink Your Drink so that we can take this message beyond the summer months. Um, some of you may have been seeing this in Muni ads. Um, great. So it's definitely, this is a citywide awareness campaign. You know, the California Department of Public Health gave San Francisco funding to um, run New York City's very cutting-edge ad. I mean, it's gross, it's effective, um, and it definitely catches your attention. So I just wanted to... Um, 
you know, show you this citywide effort um, at changing the food environment. So, so last but not least, we wanted to wrap up by just telling you about work that's being done at the community level in the Baby Hunters Point here in San Francisco, uh, one of our food deserts. And um, I just want to mention this program at the bottom, the Good Neighbor Program. This was one of the city's first efforts to work with corner stores. Um, it was launched in 2003 through a youth policy development program. And the idea was that merchants agreed to be good neighbors, so take down alcohol and tobacco ads, increase fresh produce, and increase healthy foods. And they receive certain incentives from community-based organizations in the cities. And that program is now under the umbrella of this of CIFA, the Southeast Food Access Working Group, that I'm going to talk about that's really a collaborative across city and community agencies to ensure that healthy, fresh, sustainable, and affordable food is accessible to all people in, in the Baby Hunters Point. So CIFA is really about being a catalyst for communication, advocacy, and accountability. And you can see that there's over 25, there's community-based organizations on the left left, and then a number of city departments involved in CIFA on the right. And the first thing that CIFA did was a survey of 600 community residents in three languages and specifically asked about two stores in the neighborhood. So this store had not seen a new full-service market for 17 years. And um, the local supervisor for the area just came out and said, that's just out-and-out -out racism in this mostly African-American community, that there had not been a new store. So um, the survey... Um, here's some of the, the results of the survey. Residents um, that of those surveyed, 81% rated freshness as the most important factor when choosing a place to shop, far more than affordability. They cited lack of quality fresh foods and lack of a safe, pleasant shopping atmosphere as reasons why residents don't shop at existing stores. And interestingly, many rated as most important that foods be rated, foods be free, sorry, of pesticides and chemicals and be grown by local farmers who treat farm workers fairly. So a very strong social justice approach to this idea. And based on the results of the survey, the CIFA members settled on three pillars that guide the work of the, of the group that look at the spectrum of issues across the food system, and those are urban ag, so growing our own food, awareness raising and nutrition age, education, because that's part of a comprehensive campaign to create demand in the community for these products, and then food access and retail. And I really want to focus in on the last one, uh, food access, which is about food distribution. So it's about WIC and the food bank and uh, pantries. It's about supporting farmers markets and restaurants. But as you remember, I mentioned that CIFA was originally born out of an urgency felt by the community for a full service market. So CIFA's really focused a lot on the retail environment and using the, sur the survey findings for accountability. So I want to talk about these three stores. The, the first one there is Foodsco at the bottom. And this is a large warehouse discount and very old store in the neighborhood with an extremely poor reputation. It's been... Um protested on a couple, of rep a couple of occasions by the Network for Elders, just to give you an idea. And CIFA uh, members actually advocated with all levels of management. This store is now working to improve its offerings and plans to build a new store in the current location. Fresh and Easy is the second store, and the survey results were instrumental in attracting this new full-service market to the area. Even though it's delayed somewhat, it's expected to open in the next year. And CIFA is now collaborating with Robert Wood Johnson-funded research to evaluate 
create this natural experiment. So what happens, what's the impact on the community and on existing stores when a new store opens there? And then finally, I want to talk about Super Save, um, Super Save store. So this store is a small, independently owned market, about 7,000 feet, which was the first Good Neighbor store piloted in 2004. And at that time, if you can imagine, it didn't look like the picture up there with all the produce. There was a couple heads of lettuce, a couple of potatoes, and some really bad avocados. And um, due to the Good Neighbor efforts, a lot of community organizing, uh, produce increased from 2 to 3% to 15% in store. Alcohol sales were reduced, and all the outdoor alcohol and tobacco advertising were removed. Um, still and yet, when CIFA did its survey in 2008, the community was still feeling that the store was very old and outdated, which it, which it is. And so CIFA continued to support SuperSave to improve through the development of a business master plan, pro bono technical assistance for store redesign, transformation of the waste management for significant savings in installing a new deli. And finally, due to the, the organizing through this community effort, Redevelopment has now announced it's awarding a contract to a consultant leading up to a low-interest loan to improve on the interior store design and offerings. So the store has this whole master plan to move all the produce up front, move the cash registers to the back, open up all the windows, have sort of an abundant produce feel in the Baby Hunters Point, which you just don't see anywhere. Um, as far as the other two pillars, I just want to mention that, of course, a lot of work is being done to, I, I said create demand, but I think groups doing this kind of work across the country have found that you can transform, transform stores all you want and bring in farmer's markets, but if you're not coupling that as part of a comprehensive plan with all kinds of nutrition awareness and education campaigns, really creating a buzz in the community around these kind of efforts, it's not going to have the success that you want. And then the urban ag piece is extremely important, so working with community gardens, school gardens, urban farms, etc. And so before I end, I just want to talk about the, the last uh, most recent project that CIFA's involved in, the Food Guardians. And this was just launched, and it's a community health worker effort in Spanish, Promotores de la Salud, whereby eight community residents, people that live in the Baby Hunters Point, representing the diversity in languages of the area, have been hired to advance CIFA's work on the three pillars. So the key thing is that these eight individuals will become experts on food systems, not just nutrition and obesity, but looking at overall food systems. They're going to be involved in surveying residents about the new Fresh and Easy store. They'll have a presence at community events. They'll talk about system-wide changes that are needed to increase access. They'll be involved in urban ag and will form a watchdog group to monitor progress at stores. And if you remember, I talked about that store Super Save. The redevelopment department has now asked these food guardians to work with them to conduct customer surveys in the stores and recommend standards for healthy, fresh, and sustainable stores and food for inclusion in the contract. So I just want to wrap up by saying that in order for these, these different kinds of efforts to be effective, what we really need is community-city partnerships, we need strong policies, and we need a comprehensive approach. And that, that's such that a healthy and sustainable neighborhood food system really includes a number of elements. So everything from full-service markets to healthy corner stores and smaller stores to farmers markets and CSAs, urban agriculture projects, pantries providing healthy foods, promotion of healthy eating campaigns, and most importantly, engaged based of residents, community-based organizations, city agencies, and others, and of course, much, much more. So that's pretty much it. If you'd like more information about 
systems work going on in San Francisco, check out our website at sffood.org, and all the policies and reports are there. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.